It's sometimes a struggle to speak up at the right times, and many of us seek good tools to help employees and others we influence to speak up too. On this episode, several of the key tactics backed by research that will help you and others find the right voice. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 546. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know so many of us really want to have our voices be heard. Uh, There are many books on influence and lots of research that's been done over the years on examining the why behind people speaking up but not as much on the how to do it successfully. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who will help us to navigate some of the practical steps to do this better. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Constant Locke. She is a professorial lecturer in management at the London School of Economics, where she teaches leadership, organizational behavior, and negotiation and decision-making. She has over 30 years' experience as an educator, coach, and consultant working all over the world. Prior to entering academia, she served as a regional training and development director for the Boston Consulting Group, where she was responsible for the learning and development of staff in 10 offices across Asia Pacific. Her highly popular Guardian Masterclass titled Developing Your Presence, Power, and Influence regularly sells out. Her clients include Harvard Medical School, Orange Group, KPMG, and the United Nations, and she's the recipient of a number of teaching awards from the London School of Economics. She's the author of Making Your Voice Heard, How to Own Your Space, Access Your Inner Power, and Become Influential. Consen, what a pleasure it is to speak with you. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure to be here. I loved your book, and there's just so much practical steps that we can all do to make our voices heard. And I can't wait to get into some of the details. Uh, But before we do, I was really interested in a story you tell early in the book about you and your husband right before you got married about doing some wedding planning. And I was wondering if you could take us back all those years ago to that (laughs) moment and what it taught you about speaking up. Uh, Yes. So my husband and I have been together for about 20 years now. Actually, it might be more than that. But when we first started dating, I was in my 30s, my early 30s, and still quite uncertain. You know, didn't have a whole lot of confidence in myself. And I'm very much a planner. So if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, there's the J, which is the the judger, the person who loves to make lists and checklists and plan ahead. I made a spreadsheet to plan our wedding. My husband is a P, which is the opposite. Wait until the last minute. Keep your options open. (laughs) So I was really stressed out about our wedding planning. And we had arranged one night that we were going to sit down and just go through the spreadsheet, which I know he didn't really want to do. But every time, you know, I noticed he was watching a movie on TV. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I won't interrupt him because I know he doesn't really want to go through this spreadsheet. I'll wait until the movie's over. And I waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally, the movie was over. And I went up to him and I said, okay, so we we said we'd go through the wedding spreadsheet. Could we do that now? And he was like, oh, I'm too tired. Can we just go to bed? And I was devastated. I was like, what? But but we were supposed to go through this. And I was like, does he not want to get married? 
does he really not care about this? And so I finally, I, I would normally have just kind of gone and sulked by myself, but I had been, I had been working with a therapist actually for a while because I knew that, that I wanted to make this marriage work and I wanted to learn how to like speak up. And so I forced myself to actually say to him, but I thought we were going to talk about this tonight. And he said, well, yeah, but why didn't you tell me earlier? And I said, well, you were watching a movie and I didn't want to interrupt the movie. And he was like, well, I've seen that movie before. Why didn't you just tell me? Hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. It just kind of made me go. It, it's kind of, kind of like a light bulb went off. And I went, I was the one stifling my own voice. Like he would, if I had said to him during the movie, hey, when do you want to do this? He would have turned off the movie and spoken to me. But I didn't even do that. So it, it was just a big learning for me. As I think about that story, thank you for sharing it. I think about so many stories in my own life that are like that, and also so many stories I've heard from clients over the years who have the desire to speak up, like you have the uh, had the have and had the awareness to know that maybe that wasn't a core skill for them or a core strength, and yet ran into being their own worst enemy on it. And that's why I think like the work you've done on this and and you are a, I can tell from not only reviewing your work, reading the book, watching some of the videos you've done in the past, you have really made a big shift in how you approach <laughs> this and now teaching others to do it. What's different about your thinking today when you think about that versus that 20 years ago? Oh, I think the big thing that shifted is I realized that my voice deserves to be heard because I never truly believed that. And it had something to do with my upbringing. You know, I'm, I'm Chinese American. I had very traditional Chinese parents who were, um, you know, in the tradition of Chinese parents, you could call them autocratic. They, they basically believed that children should be seen and not heard and we should do everything that they say. And, and so I, I stifled my voice when I was young. And as I got older, nobody ever said to me, Constan, tell us what you think. Constan, you deserve to be heard. Like nobody really encouraged that in me. So I had to learn it myself. And it took me a really, really long time. But it was, for me, it was a process. So there, there's this, um, Khalil Gibran wrote a book called The Prophet. And when I took an Outward Bound course, I remember at the end of that course, they were reading excerpts from the book, which is why I bought it. And there's this one quote that I didn't understand at the time that I really understand now. And it's, your pain is the breaking of the shell that contains your understanding. Mm. And I didn't understand it until I had gone through pain, until I had gone through, you know, essentially failing at a job and being let go, until I had gone through moving to a new city when I moved to Hong Kong and I didn't have a job and I had to find a job, you know, changing industries and being the new person on the block, like many, many times and feeling like I was just so dumb because I didn't understand what was going on. So all of that pain over and over again, it helped me grow and it helped me grow in confidence and compassion. And as I grew, I started to realize that I have something important to share. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, the thing that I really loved about the book is you do a beautiful job of 
bringing in not only your own story and your own journey of struggle and working through this and discovering a lot along the way, but you also integrate it really well with the research and what the research shows on this. And you've given us a gift of a path to follow on how to do this better for those of us who do struggle with speaking up more. And one of the one of the main points is managing your negative emotions. And you write in the book that if we're going to be successful in our upward influence attempts, we must learn to manage our negative emotions. And on its face, when I first read that, I thought, well, how does that connect to speaking up? But there is a really strong connection there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Because negative emotions, it's basically fear Fear is the one that I was that I thought of first when I was writing about that. So a lot of this, basically, the way I wrote the book was informed by my own journey, but the content of the book is the stuff that I teach when I teach my leadership courses. And so having taught leadership at the LSE for more than 10 years now, I kind of I have a lot of research that I draw on and the stuff that I really like bringing in. But the thing about the negative emotions, that is very much about my own personal journey. And for me, I had to overcome fear. But for some people, I know it's also overcoming anger. Negative emotions are a message. Negative emotions are a signal. They're telling us that something needs to be paid attention to. So if the negative emotion is fear, maybe what that means is we need to take a different approach, or we need to build our confidence first, or we need to go get a bit of, I don't know, think of a new strategy. If the negative emotion is anger, maybe something needs to change here. Maybe there's something I need to do something about. But the point here is that negative emotions, we often ignore them, whereas we should pay attention to them. What is this telling me? And then how do I get bigger than it? How do I not let this derail me? It's a signal, but it's not, you know, it's kind of like, when someone's pointing at something and instead of looking at the thing they're pointing at, you're looking at the finger. So the negative emotion is the finger. What you really need to be looking at is the thing that the finger is pointing at and figuring out how to deal with that. Which is hard to do, isn't it? And I'm curious, as you've been teaching this now over the years and helping people to manage their emotions better too, what have you found that works for people to be able to not ignore the finger, but to be able to see the larger message behind it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the main things is you don't let it take you over. This was one of the main reasons why I was actually working with a therapist through my 30s. And it was time and money well spent. Because now when when I get hit with a negative emotion, I can take a few deep breaths and get bigger than it. So if you imagine the negative emotion as something that's like, it's, it's kind of welling up inside you, this fear or this anger or this anxiety or whatever it is, if you make yourself bigger, then that thing that's welling up inside you just becomes a small part of you. You go, okay, here it is again. Take a few deep breaths and just keep going. But if you can't get bigger than it, it wells up inside you and it completely takes you over and you're just going ah mm-hmm. and and i'm seeing this right now actually you know i'm i'm helping i'm helping faculty and i'm helping staff figure out this new way of teaching we're doing this thing at lse which is hybrid teaching where we've got some students in the classroom 
and some students online. And it's highly technically complicated. And I see different people reacting different ways. And some people get so frustrated, they lash out and they snap at people. And other people get so overwhelmed by it. They're like, but wait, I can't, I can't, I can't take this in. And so it's, it's really, it's something that can help us in everyday life is learning how to get bigger than these negative emotions and don't let them take us over. This actually leads in a bit perhaps to one of the other invitations you make to us is being really intentional about deliberate practice. And you invite us to move away from repetition and to actually move toward deliberate practice. What is deliberate practice and what is it that makes it so useful in Mm. building this muscle of speaking up? So this deliberate practice comes from Anders Ericsson's research. I mean, I, I love, so I see myself as a bridge between academia and the world, you know, because there is so much great research, but oftentimes people don't know about it. So his research, you've probably heard of the 10,000 hours thing, right? Malcolm sure. Gladwell made this popular. If you do something for 10,000 hours, you're an expert. When people start talking about things like that, when things become common knowledge, I always get really curious. I'm like, where did this come from? What's the original study? So I looked up the original study and it was a study of violinists. And what they found was that the, at the age of, I I can't remember, 25 or something, the best violinists had had at least 10,000 hours of practice. So you can see 10,000 hours is a little bit arbitrary. If they had measured them at like the age of 30, maybe we'd be saying 15,000 hours. Mm-hmm. But, but the basic point there was the more practice, the better, but the type of practice they were doing mattered as well. So it wasn't simply performing or practicing for fun. It was actually working with a coach who points out the stuff that you're doing badly. So maybe you're playing a piece and the coach says, oh, you know what, that bar right there, you need to work on this. And so you sit there doing that over and over and over again, just that little bit of that song. And then you move on once you've perfected that. So deliberate practice is basically identifying those pieces of the process or whatever it is you're trying to do, where you're weakest, really focusing in on that and working on it, and then moving on. And you kind of, you need feedback for that. It's, it's less about the quantity of hours and it's more about the intentional focus on the area that you actually need the most work in order to move the needle. Mm-hmm. And yep. I, I'm thinking about that in the context of someone listening to this who uh, is, is like you and me 20 years ago, who mm-hmm. has just come out of a meeting yesterday where maybe they wanted to speak up and didn't. Uh, or maybe they started to speak up and they got interrupted and then they never came back to get to contribute anything. When you think about that kind of a person, that kind of a situation, and then thinking about that through a deliberate practice lens, what's a way for them to start thinking about that through through the intention of being more deliberate in their practice? So a few things come to mind. So the best negotiators always sit down after a negotiation and reflect And I think if you're trying to work on speaking up, it's good to sit down after a meeting or maybe at the end of the week and just reflect on all of those opportunities that you had to speak up or those opportunities when you did speak up, maybe you didn't do it as well as you wanted to, or maybe you did. And to really just reflect and think, what did I do well that I should keep doing? 
What did I do badly? And if it's something that you did badly, then what I would say is there are a few ways of approaching this, depending on your personality. You could write in a journal. And I tend to, I, I really enjoy just writing to myself, basically, and saying, you know, why, why did I do that so badly? Oh, I can't believe da, 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 da. And usually if you just write a few pages after a while, maybe you start to see the problem from a different perspective, or maybe you think of something else you could have done. Or if you're a more extroverted person sitting down with a friend or a colleague who you trust, or even hiring a coach and talking it through with them, what else could I have done differently? And then if it's something you really want to work on, I'd role play it. I would actually sit down with someone you trust and role play it out and try it because role playing, like actually getting that muscle memory is one of the best ways of trying to improve, you know, your ability to think in the moment. My first job, we had a corporate culture of role playing and I mm. hated it. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, and, and a lot of my peers did as well too, because it was really, it was in your face. It was uncomfortable. It mm -hmm. would do exactly what you just said. Like our management team would zero in on the parts of the conversation we hadn't done well. And we'd go back and do those again and again and again. And it was unbelievably effective at yeah. helping me at that time to strengthen that muscle and that skill. And I really did. I still don't like it, but I really did come around to seeing the value of it. And if like, if you can get yourself a bit like just beyond the discomfort of doing it, boy, it, it, it just makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And see, there you go. Your pain is the breaking of the shell of your understanding. So that is yeah. a type of pain. Yeah, indeed. One of the other places for us to lean in on a bit here is boosting our own self-confidence. And one of the things that you suggest that we do is, is being conscious of power. And in so many of these situations where we need to, where we want to speak up or maybe need to speak up, the reason we don't is because there's a power differential in the room. There's someone who has mm -hmm. more power, more influence, or a group of people. And it's so easy to get caught up in thinking about that power difference. And you encourage people to don't zero in on that. Actually remind yourself of something else. It, remind yourself mm -hmm. of their role. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. There's a lot of research. This is Dr. Keltner's research where if you're very conscious of the power difference, the person who's in the lower power position becomes inhibited and fearful. And they're just focusing on, oh no, I don't want to offend the other person. And, and you're holding back. And then the Conversely, the person who's higher in power, if they're focusing on the fact that, oh, I have more power than this other person, they become uninhibited and more focused on what can I get out of this person rather than seeing the other person as an equal. So the strategy that I think helps is to don't think about the power differential. If you're speaking up to your boss, rather than thinking, oh yeah, this is my boss, I better be careful. Think about what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to make the world a better place, if you're trying to improve something, if you're trying to fix something, focus on that because that's what's motivating you. That's why you're speaking up. And therefore, your boss is no longer your boss. Your boss is someone who can help you get this wonderful thing, this improvement, whatever it is, make that happen. And that's what I would suggest you focus on. It's such a useful way to look at it. 
I think I've shared on the show before, I try to do something similar when I'm talking to people who are guests who I feel like there's a lot of power differential people I've admired for many years. And <laughs> like you, I've sort of come to a place of I, I really try to set that aside and I then come to the conversation with the intention of how can I bring out what our audience needs to hear from this person? And by focusing on that, the, like the greater good, the uh, to, to borrow Dacker Keltner's term, to really zero in on that, like is so helpful at managing the fear. The fear's still there, but it doesn't stop me then as much. And it makes it, it makes it so much more accessible. And speaking of accessibility, one of the one of the things that was really interesting to me in thinking about, like you having looked at a lot of this research, is psychologists who do research on power do a lot of this all the time. Like they, when they bring in study participants, they need to set up situations where people have more power and less power in experiments really quickly. And mm-hmm. you talk about that in the book, and you also talk about like how do they do that? And like there's some interesting things that I think are implications for us too on like how we could maybe do some of that for ourselves. Yeah, I ran some of these studies because that's that's what I studied when I did my PhD was power differentials. And I had to, um, I, I was studying communication between the boss and the employee, but I only had access to students. I basically had to get an actor to play the boss and the student to believe that this person was a boss. But there were other studies where I had to get two students and have one of them believe they were the boss and the other one, the employee. So, so I, I had to use a lot of these strategies for manipulating a feeling of power of either higher power or lower power. And it turns out that that's actually really useful for everyday life as well. So one of the easiest manipulations that we use is you actually have them sit down and just write for 10 minutes. And if you're trying to manipulate high power, you say, Think of a time when you had power over someone else mm. and write about it. What, what happened? How did it feel? What was the outcome? All of these things. And then if you're trying to manipulate low power, which we're not trying to do in this case, you know, think of a time when you didn't have power, over, when someone had power over you. But so the point is to, if you can remember that time when you had power, use it, like use it before a a presentation when you're feeling nervous because it's only 10 minutes and it's really easy. Yeah. It, just taking that time to write that out, reflect on it. And and it's, it's fascinating, like how much that really does influence then our thinking about going into those situations and our likelihood to then speak up and to approach that conversation with a really different dynamic, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I also, in that section of the book, I also talk about power posing which has kind of gotten a bad rap among psychologists. So basically, you know, a lot of people are aware of Amy Cuddy's TED talk where she talks about power posing and power yeah, posing is just yeah. a, it's a dominance pose. So you, you stand with your arms and legs spread kind of like the wonder woman pose or with your arms up in the air. And what they found, you don't do this in front of other people, by the way, you kind of do it in private for two minutes. And what they found in that original study was that by doing that for two minutes, you lower your stress hormone, cortisol, and then you increase testosterone, which is the um, which makes you then more confident and risk-taking. Now, the reason it's gotten a bad rap among social psychologists is that other researchers who tried to replicate that could not find any change in the hormonal levels. And so they said, oh, well, you know, this, this can't be replicated. But 
they did find that people felt a bit more confident afterwards. And, and here's the thing, is if you do the power writing or the power posing beforehand, and they did the study where they had people do a presentation, they had a bunch of people do presentations in front of judges, and the judges had no idea if you had done a power pose or not before the presentation. So half the people did a power pose and half the people did not. They all gave presentations and the judges watched the presentations and the people whose presentations were judged to be more engaging turned out to be the ones who had done the power pose. Fascinating. So we don't actually know what the mechanism is that this works through which this works, but we know it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing. Um, it, it, it's one of those like, you know, don't get too caught up in the trees and miss the forest, right? Of, uh, yeah. you know, here's a, here's a tactic between that and the reflection, like what a, what a great way to, if you've never thought about doing something like that before, especially going into a situation where there is a big power differential and you know it's going to be a place where there might be some fear, what a great place to start as, mm-hmm. as something to, to begin on. The other thing that you mentioned is the importance of generating real positive emotions. And you, you also make the invitation of just thinking about how we approach our free time as who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And you invite us to plan free time around learning a new skill or maybe helping others versus like, you know, watching Netflix or going on a vacation or something mm-hmm. like that, which is great too. But tell me a bit about that and, and how does that help? Well, so I got into, I started digging into that research because I actually thought there was something wrong with me. When my husband and I first started dating, we went on what people would think was a ideal holiday. We were living in Hong Kong at the time. So it's really easy to go to Thailand or you know all those places nearby. So we went to Thailand and spent a few days at a resort. There was nothing to do. It was just this beautiful resort, you know, beautiful beach, beautiful swimming pool. You lie by the swimming pool, read a book. I hated it. It was like the worst vacation I had ever had. And I thought, wow, there is something seriously wrong with me. And I thought it was because my dad was always a workaholic. I thought, oh, you know, I've got a disease. I'm a workaholic. That must be why. And then I stumbled on this research about eudaimonia and hedonia. So hedonic pleasures are things like lying on the beach. They're passive pleasures. You lie on the beach, you binge watch Netflix, you eat a fancy meal. I mean, we need this. We definitely need this. But if that's the only way we spend our free time, then it's actually not very fulfilling. And so the contrast is something called eudaimonia, E-U-D-A-M-O-N-I-A, which is more its purpose. So it's it's doing something in your free time that gives you a feeling of purpose, meaning you could be learning a new language or you could be volunteering. Volunteering has been found, there's tons of research on volunteering and how that makes people happier and even healthier, actually, they did a study of retired people and people who were volunteering and had more felt they had more purpose in life actually slept better and their, their cognitive function was better. It could be something like making something. So creativity gives you a purpose. You know, you're crocheting a sweater or you're making, at one point I was crocheting little animals. And so it's just this thinking more more consciously about how you spend your free time because our culture brainwashes us into thinking, oh, the best way to spend your free time is to lie on the beach and have nothing to do. But if that's all you do, after a while, it's going to feel really empty 
And so just thinking about how you can balance your free time so that sometimes you're actually doing something where you have some purpose. I was doing making some clay stuff with my daughter the other day. And afterwards, it was like, oh, we made something. Actually, this was really fun. We have something to show for what we did. So it's, it's just really thinking more, more about that and how can I have some purpose even in my free time. How does that connect back then to helping us to speak up and make our mm. voice heard? It connects back to this idea that people want to be around others who who they get positive vibes from. So it's it's not just about speaking up, it's about being influential. Uh, and if you want to be influential, if you want people to think, oh, she's worth listening to, or she's worth um, working with, or really, we'd love to get Consum to work on our committee because I like working with her. The more people think of you that way, the more influence you end up having in the organization and the more you can actually create a change. So even though the book is called Making Your Voice Heard, it's not always about saying something. Sometimes it's about being, being something, being that person that people want to be around, being that light. And then when the time comes to make a change, you have more influence. You've been doing this work for a long time. Um, you've really just been such an acclaimed teacher and a guide for so many. As you have written this book and gone around and, and taught people in different organizations, I'm just curious, maybe in the last couple of years, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on? So I teach leadership and I've changed my mind about leadership styles because what I've always said is that there is no one size fits all leadership style. And therefore every, every type of style is valid. Okay, so I, I haven't changed my mind 180 degrees, but I, I've, I've changed my mind, I'd say 30 to 45 degrees in the sense that there, there are two basic leadership styles that you can think of. There's, I mean, you can break it down in many different ways, but I, I like to think of it generally as on the one hand, you've got the leader as influencer. So this is our traditional leader the one-way communication, the leader who's like, I know the best way to do this, let me tell you. On the other hand, you've got the leader as facilitator. So this is the, the leader who says, let's have a conversation about this. What do you think? And, and is kind of facilitating that conversation. So I used to say, both of these are great, you know, equally important as a leader. Now I've, I've done this kind of 30 to 45 degree shift towards the leader as facilitator. I've started to believe that we need to really think of leadership more as a facilitator than an influencer. This is kind of like a, a, a huge societal shift. You know, the in, leader as influencer was the 1940s and 50s kind of leader. We need to move away from that. And something happened to me recently that made me really, that really brought this home to me. So I'm, I'm program director for a couple of different master's programs here at LSE. And there's this one program where it's an executive program. It's an executive master's in management. And so students come from all over the world and they come to the LSE. They're, they're working full-time and they're studying part-time. So they come to the LSE for one week at a time and then they go back home and then they come back for another week and they go back home. And while they're here for that week, it's intensive studying. It's like 9, 9 a.m. to like 6 or 7 p.m. studying for a week, learning um, in the classroom. 
Now, we can't do that, obviously, right now with the pandemic. And so we're doing hybrid teaching, meaning we've got some people online and some people in the classroom. So as the program director, I worked with the program team. We came up with a schedule and then we sent the schedule out to the students and we got all this pushback, like that schedule doesn't work for us. No, we've got to do it this way. And I was just like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? You know, I'm the program director. I get to decide the schedule. But I realized, no, that's not the way we should be leading anymore. I need to listen to what the students are saying because this hybrid schedule is new to me. Like we've never done it this way before. So I need to listen to them. And so I had a meeting with the student reps and we worked out a different kind of schedule that worked better for the students. And it just reminded me that even in a job where you think I'm the program director, I should be setting the schedule and telling the students what the schedule is. But none of us have done this before. None of us have taught a hybrid type course. So actually, I need to facilitate this conversation. I need to get buy-in. And I really think we spend too much time thinking of the leader as the person who knows everything and has all the answers. And we need to really think of leadership as I don't have all the answers but I know who to ask and I'm able to listen and I'm able to change my mind when it's time to change my mind. Constant Locke is the author of Making Your Voice Heard, How to Own Your Space, Access Your Inner Power, and Become Influential. Constant, thank you so much for sharing your research and for sharing your story. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure to be here. Ironically, I was just asked this week by one of our members, how do I help one of the people on my team to speak up more effectively? And I passed along a couple of Constance articles. Uh, This book is going to be my go-to recommendation for folks who ask me in the future, how do I help people speak up? I know many of us, as our careers have progressed, have gotten better at doing this as we've moved into roles with more visibility, and we find ourselves now in a place where we are looking for ways to help others to do this well. Uh, What a wonderful resource this book is to give folks some practical steps to be able to find their voice. Thanks again, Constant, for your work. Several related episodes I'd recommend. Two of them are guests that are referenced in Constant's book as well that we've had on the show in the past. One of them is Dacker Keltner. He was on episode 254 talking about using power for good and not evil. Uh, Dacker talks about the relationship between power and empathy and that paradox. Uh, So many useful ways to think about Power and How Power Affects Us as Leaders, episode 254 for more on that. I'd also recommend Laura Huang, who is mentioned in Constance's book as well. The episode is 480, Get Noticed Without Selling Out. Many of us have heard, either literally over the years, or we've believed that if we're going to get noticed, we need to, quote unquote, sell out. Uh, Laura says no. Uh, There's lots of effective ways to get your voice out in the world without selling out. And in episode 480, we talk about some of the key processes and tactics and mindsets to be able to do that effectively. A great compliment to this conversation. And then, of course, I'd recommend the recent episode with Tom Henschel, episode 518, The Way to Make Sense to Others. So many of you told us how useful that conversation between Tom and I 
was. And in that episode, we talk about when you get in front of an audience or a meeting and you're trying to get your point across, how do you actually do it tactically in the conversation to make it clear to others what it is that's up in your brain that you want to get out to the audience? Episode 518, step-by-step on how to do that. And then finally, I'd recommend one of the past journal episodes that I aired earlier in my career. One of the things I often heard was, we don't hear your voice enough in meetings. And I wanted to do a better job at jumping into conversations. Uh, I aired a journal episode on that exact topic, how to jump in more effectively. You can find that in the episode notes. And of course, this week's weekly leadership guide coming in your inbox. All of these resources you can find, of course, on the coachingforleaders.com website. When you visit there, you'll be able to search for all of our past episodes since 2011, searchable by topic. One of the topic areas that this episode is going to be filed under is executive presence, something that I know many of us are working to get better at and help others to get better at. Many other episodes I've aired over the years on this. You can find all of that at coachingforleaders.com by setting up your free membership. When you do, you can search the entire library. You'll also have access to my interview notes and book notes, just like For this conversation, Constance's book, uh, uh, the highlights I've identified, some of the questions I detailed out in the interview, available for download, as are many of the past interviews from the last several years. Plus, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide that comes each week with resources for you to help you continue your leadership development, plus access to my entire personal library, all of the free audio courses. There's a ton inside the free membership. If you haven't yet set up your uh, membership, you're missing out on all that. Coachingforleaders.com to get into all the details there. Next week, I'm glad to welcome another leadership podcaster to the show, Carrie Newhoff. He's going to be talking with me about how to limit time with the wrong people, a challenge most of us face as leaders on a somewhat daily basis. In our conversation, Carrie and I are going to explore how do we handle that with professionalism and grace. Join me for that conversation next Monday. Take care.